stand cannot uh, stand in itself. These words of Jesus that I just stumbled over <laughs> have taken almost a proverbial kind of nature to them. So much so that people almost forget that Jesus said these words. The more apt when you think of these words, a house divided against itself cannot stand, the more apt to think of Abraham Lincoln because he used that passage, that verse, in his uh, speech when he accepted the nomination to the U.S. Senate. And he was pointing to the problems that the, that the United States had and pointing to the looming threat of the Civil War and how there was disunity in this nation. And he used that statement from Jesus to illustrate it. But it's taking on that proverbial kind of stance where we use it to denote disunity or problems or potential for problems in very serious ways like Abraham Lincoln used it to funny ways when Families or couples point to the fact that they root for different college teams and say that they have a house divided. They may even make license plate covers about that. And they point to this might cause some problem come football season or basketball season. But the idea is that there actually is a problem when unity does not exist where it's supposed to exist. And that actually carries over into the church, that there is a problem when there's not unity in a body that should be united. And we see that throughout the New Testament again and again about how the church should be united by its faith, united for its love for one another, and that is actually a marker of the church, and that they need to protect that unity. Again and again, we can see it in the New Testament when it talks about the one another commands. When you read the New Testament and we see again and again how we're supposed to love one another, serve one another, be there for one another, and again and again you see those commands and it's speaking about the unity of the faith. When Jesus himself talks about his followers and says how you love one another actually shows people that you're my followers. It's talking about that unity of the faith. When Paul talks about we should be of one mind or one spirit or even talking about how the divisions that once separated us no longer matter because we're united in Christ, he's talking about the importance of, of unity and how we are fundamentally changed into a new family under God and how we're supposed to bear with one another and be there for one another. And again, again, you can find example after example, command after command about how we're supposed to protect this unity that we're given in the church, in the community of the faith. And we see it again at the end of the book of Titus. As Paul is writing to Titus and he ends his letter talking about the importance of unity. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Titus chapter 3. If you don't, it says it's going to be on the screen here, and we're going to read Titus chapter 3, 9 through 15. This is very clearly connected to the passage we just studied last week about how we're supposed to be living out our faith, and then he starts this, past, this uh, section with that word, but. And he says, but, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or uh, Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to send Zenus the warrior and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. 
And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so that as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. When I read that passage, when I was studying that passage, the idea that kind of came to mind or kind of really rose to the top was this idea that a unified church stays on mission. Because when you read that passage, you see the flowing of, hey, don't, don't be in these quarrels, don't be in these dissensions, rather be focused on what is important. And then we see in those last closing statements how that impacts the mission of God, how it impacts sending people to continue the mission of God, how it impacts taking care of people right there and in the community of God. And so a unified church stays on mission. Why? Because when we get distracted from what is important, when we forget what is essential to what makes us a church, we can become divided and we can become distracted and be led away in different ways. But rather, when we are unified by what it means to be a Christian, if we're unified by what it means to be a church, we stay on the mission that God has given us to perform. A unified church stays on mission. So how do we stay unified? First, we avoid division. That's how this passage starts, right? It says, but avoid controversies, worthless controversies foolish controversies. Avoid these genealogies. Avoid these dissensions. Avoid these quarrels about the law. You're supposed to avoid these things. As I said last week, uh, Bruce Brown uh, was leading us through the passage right before this about how uh, we're supposed to be living our faith and we're supposed to be doing these good deeds and we're supposed to be excellent towards each other. And I told him afterwards, I think you could have summed up the theology of Paul here with the theology of Bill and Ted, that we're supposed to be excellent to each other. Because that's really what it was saying, is that we're supposed to be excellent to each other. And so how do we be excellent to each other? Is we love each other, and we care for each other, and we provide for each other's needs. And but these quarrels, these dissensions, these controversies, these arguments about genealogies, these would get in the way of being excellent towards each other be loving towards each other. Why? Because they distract and they're of no value. Just take how, look how Paul describes these controversies. He says they're unprofitable, worthless. He describes them as foolish. These are arguments or items of discussion or points of dissension that have no value in themselves. They, they distract, they're empty, they're not based on truth, they do nothing for the church or for the people of the church. Uh, they don't move individuals towards honoring God, but rather keeps them fighting each other. These are things that don't really matter in the scheme of things, but are dividing the church and causing pain and hardship and causing people to lose focus about what is important. Paul says, avoid these things. Whether controversies that might be this atom, moments of uh, items of discussion that people have different opinions on, but they're not central to the faith, that are causing conflict. He says, avoid these things. Now, what Paul's not saying here is that discussions about theology or discussion about deep things are not important. 
Throughout the whole book, we've seen this. He, 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 he lays out the, the faith and the, what we believe and what he believes and says these are important and you hold fast to things and you teach these things and how they're connected to how we live. And so he would never argue that you're not supposed to have good, deep family conversations about the deep things of the faith. Rather, he says, avoid those things that are these non-essential items that cause conflict that actually disrupt the unity. He's arguing that you shouldn't dive into things that have no point if they're going to cause problems with other people. Rather, you hold fast to what we know is true, and then you can have good family discussions about those other things without letting it divide you. Some people argue against theology, knowing, you know, thinking deep thoughts about God or, or doctrine, because they say that stuff divides. Man, people get caught up into theology and it starts dividing people and people start fighting about these kind of esoteric doctrines or they start to find asking these questions that don't really matter. And I would argue, no, theology is good as we see again and again through the Bible. We're supposed to think deep thoughts about God because we love him and we want to know him. And so we explore him through his word and we look at how he has saved us and we marvel at that and we want to embrace that and know it as deep as we can. And so theology thinking about God is good for us and we should be diving into that. But rather what this is arguing about is people who are taking things that are not central to the faith. They're debatable, or actually, if you look at these words, they're actually probably not even related to the faith at all because they're unprofitable, worthless, and foolish. And they're trying to bring them center to the Christian church. So people are going to fight about this. You might read that and say, well, shouldn't we have open minds? Isn't that a, a virtue that we love in our and A's, that we have these open minds that we accept and we're willing to listen to most anything? And I say, yeah, we should have open minds. But I love a quote by uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was an uh, a English um, a theologian, and he was a great wordsmith, and he says this, the object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shed it again on something solid. Too often nowadays when people say, have an open mind, they think, you have no firm position, you accept everything people say, and you're willing to entertain every possibility. And I would say, no, you have an open mind, you entertain possibilities, but you stand on a truth you know for sure is true, and you hold fast to that. And so when something comes up, you can, you can receive it, you can analyze it, but you're supposed to shut your mind on that which is true, that which is solid. And as Christians, we look at the, the gospel, we look at the word, and we know this is true, this is who God God is. And so we shut our minds on what the Bible says is true and we hold on to it. And we have an open mind to receive what people say, but we compare it to what the Word of God says and we stand on that. So we receive that information. We can have great debates, but we stand on the truth of who God is. That we avoid division in the Christian church. How? By standing on the truth of God's Word and knowing who God is, and knowing who Jesus is, and how he saves us. We keep those things central. When you, uh, we have a membership process here if you want to join the church, and as we go into the membership, we have a statement of faith, because we believe we should be united in the statement of faith, and when we're talking about that, we use a, a time tested phrase that has been with the Christian church. Some argue since the fourth century, some argue since later, but it's this idea that in, uh, we have unity in the essentials, we have liberty in the non-essentials, 
And in all things, we have charity or love. This is the idea that in those essentials, the things we say, this is what makes a Christian a Christian. This is what makes a believer a believer. That we believe in Jesus Christ and that he lived for us and he died for us and he rose for us. We believe that God reveals himself as a holy trinity. We believe these things. These are central and we hold to them. This is what makes our church our church. This is what unites us in faith. In those, we have unity. That when someone joins our faith, we say, hey, you believe these things with me and we can be unified with us and we stand shoulder to shoulder in these things. But we also realize that in the Christian faith, there's a lot of debatable matters. These things that we would say are non-essential, they're important. They, they impact how a church operates and how we love each other and how we see God, but they're not essential. We, they're not, we don't look at someone who has a different opinion about one of these items and say, you are no longer my brother or sister in Christ. They're non-essential. We say, no, you are, might be my brother or my sister, but we just disagree at this point. And in those things, we have liberty. The biggest one here, I would say, at our church is if your, your belief or how you believe the end times are going to happen. Whatever kind of system you fall into, we don't have a statement saying you have to believe a certain system to be part of this church. We believe Jesus is returning, and we have hope in that, and we stand firm in that. And if you want to debate about timelines or how it's happening, go for it. But we do it with love because in all things we have love towards each other, towards other Christians, other churches who might disagree with us on some non-essentials, we have love towards them. And we even have love for those who disagree with us in the essentials because it's by our love, as we continue to reach out to them, that we hope that God convicts them and sees the truth of who Jesus is. And so in all these things, that's how we try to avoid this division because we're united by, behind a common faith, as Paul says, avoid these things that are going to distract. But then he continues in verses 11 and 10 and says, if there is a divisive person, a person who is taking things that are not central to the faith and trying to bring them in center to the faith, you warn them once, you warn them twice, and then you have nothing to do with them. And that sounds so harsh to our modern ears. But what he's talking about is that division needs to be corrected. Division needs to actually be disciplined. But when we look at that and we see it sounding harsh, we see it sounding unloving, you have to look at how Paul is describing the certain person. This is not a person who's just asking hard questions. This is not just a person who's honestly trying to seek what it means to believe. Those people are welcomed in, and we seek them, and, walk, and we seek answers for them, and we walk with them as they start to process what believes. This is not someone who just wants to have a good, friendly debate. This is actually someone who's taking something that's non-essential, who is debatable, and now is saying, this is central to faith. And so if you don't agree with me on this issue, you are no longer brothers. And so you can see how someone like that would start disrupting the church. Because now they're going to say this person's not a believer, that person's not a believer, only this little core second's believers, and so the church could be divided and rifts could happen and people would be harmed. Because you can see how it would harm someone if someone came up with authority and started saying, if you don't believe this minutia about how it means we follow Christ, then you're no longer a Christian. And if someone who's not sure in the faith could be, could be torn up and worried 
and stressed and anxious about that. And so Paul's saying, you don't let that person gain a foothold in the community of faith. Rather, you have nothing to do with them if they don't respond to correction, that you should not listen to them or let them speak with authority in the local church. I think you further see that this is someone who's not looking for answers. This is not someone who cares about the church or other people by how Paul describes this person that they are warped, sinful, self-condemned. They're warped. They're twisted inside out. They don't understand. They're sinful. They're caught in sin away from Christ, and they're self-condemned that what they're teaching actually shows that they don't understand the gospel. They don't understand what it is that saves us. Paul is saying these people actually are probably not believers because what they're doing is they're corrupting the truth of Christ. That they don't hold fast to this truth. That Jesus Christ came and was born of a virgin, lived for us the life we could not live, died for us, taking our sin upon him so that we could have righteousness, a right standing before God. And then he rose on the third day, vindicating himself and showing us and giving us that new life that he's achieved for us. They don't hold to that. They would point to something else that would save you, whether it's following the law or something about genealogy or all these things. They would point to that, and so they stand self-condemned because they no longer understand and hold fast to the gospel. So Paul says we should have nothing to do with someone like that because they are teaching falsehoods and they're leading people astray. Paul never talks about Christians using these terms in such a way, warped, sinful, self-condemned. When he speaks of Christians, he calls them saints. Yeah, we struggle. We still deal with sin. But we're gods, and we follow him. We're described fundamentally different. So what is the response to his people? Paul says, have nothing to do with him. What he's talking about is the idea of church discipline. That the church will actually ask someone not to be part of its body anymore because they're causing too much trouble. That the leadership of the church actually would, would protect the flock by taking care of someone who is leading people astray. There's, there's, uh, this idea of church discipline has kind of uh, not been in favor probably for a long time in a lot of churches because, well, it seems harsh, we live in America, we have freedom of liberty. If, if you say, hey, you're teaching wrong things, chances are that person is going to walk down the street and go to another church. And so it's almost like, what's the point? But it's a valuable thing because church discipline actually has been recognized as probably a mark of the Christian church from the very beginning. That a Christian church preaches the gospel and ministers the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper and also disciplines those who go astray, who call upon the name of Christ. That we actually have relationships with people where we step into their lives and say, you have wandered off the path of what is true, and we beg with you, we plead with you, come back to the truth of who Christ is. And so that's that warning. We warn them once, we warn them twice, is that we plead with them, we hold out the gospel again, we love them, and we ask that they come back and be united with us again in the faith. But if they persist in believing differently, how can we call them brother or sister? If they persist 
and downplaying or, dim, or pushing aside or putting something else in place of the gospel, how can we call them part of the family of God? Because we hold fast to the truth of who Christ is. This is not an idea that Paul just speaks about in Titus here. We see it again and again through the New Testament. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 18 when he talks about if someone sins against you and about the process of how you restore that person is that you approach them one-on-one, you take up a witness to them. If they, ref- if they still persist in not recognizing how they've sinned against you, what do you do? You take it to the church. The body helps you be reconciled. And that's an important point, as we see through these passages again and again, whether it's Galatians 6.1, about how we bear with one another in their sin, about how we who are spiritual should bear with those who are caught in sin so that we, they can be restored and that the fundamental purpose of church discipline is when someone loses sight of the gospel is that we're seeking to restore them to the unity of the faith. We're seeking to love them and restore them to this community or the community they belong to in a way which they can understand and hold fast to the truth of who Jesus is. We also seek to do this, as I said, because it protects the rest of the people so they're not led astray in thoughts that are not going to be beneficial and would just cause more uh, division. And we do it to keep what is essential at the center of our faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we seek to do this out of love. We seek to do this because we need to correct this unity. But we also seek to do this, I would argue, as Paul says in Titus, it impacts our mission this supports the sharing of the gospel and helps us care for people. Let's just take a look at verses 12 through 11. You know, at the end of passage of letters, Paul's letters, it's really tempting just to skim over all those names that he mentions and like, oh yeah, those are real people during that time, but I can hardly pronounce it, and so why does it matter? I can hardly pronounce it. This is a little, little confession. I listen to an audible Bible before I preach almost any name, so I know I'm not just being an idiot on how I say these things. That's me. That's what three years of grad school will get you. So, in verses 12 through 13, what does he say? What does Paul say? He says, When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, seeing that they lack nothing. And we can be tempted to read that and say, That's just, oh, that's just him speaking to those peas. Uh, speaking to people, but it's so interesting that this follows this argument about avoid division. He's saying, hey, we're not divided. We're unified in our mission. And how do we know we're unified in our mission? Is because we have these good brothers who are in the mission serving, and they're coming to your city. And you're in your city right now. You have these missionaries, Zenos and Apollos. Send them on their way. And you see through this relationship that there's this unity, a unity that comes from the faith. And so that keeping that unity impacts the mission. It helps support sharing the gospel. That Titus came to Crete because these were brothers and sisters who needed some instruction, and he was sent by Paul, and he came here, and he spoke to them, and he taught them, and he lived life with them, and now Paul calls Titus back to him. And so what does Paul do? He says, I'm sending other teachers. I'm sending people who are going to help you. And so he's going to send Artemis and Tychicus. And we don't know anything else about Artemis except for right here is that he's a fellow worker with Paul. But we've seen the name Tychicus before. 
It's mentioned by Paul several times. Actually, he was just like Titus, a letter carrier for Paul. He would go where Paul sent him, helping strengthening the churches. So we see these workmen united by this faith, being sent out, being sent to different cities, ministering to churches in need. And then he has that phrase about, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, seeing that they lack nothing. Once again, we don't know anything else beside, about Zenos except for right here. But apparently Zenos and Apollos were there in Crete with Titus, and now he says, send these guys on, for they're furthering the mission. They have more places to go. And so Titus is supposed to encourage and provide the need for the needs of Zenos and Apollos as they leave to go somewhere else to preach the gospel. And right there we see the church and the power that happens when a church is unified. Could Titus on his own provide the needs for Zenos and Apollos? He probably couldn't. He was a poor itinerant preacher being sent here and there to strengthen the church. It's only when the church was unified behind a common gospel, behind a common faith, that they could send these people on to further the spread of the gospel. And we see the power of unity right there. That when Christians band together, based on unity of faith, we become exponentially more powerful in helping the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. That's why you see many denominations and many associations of churches band together. Why? So they can pool their resources to help send and train people so the gospel can be preached. It's why here at River Valley Community Church, we partner with LDI, who helps people know Jesus through the, the ministry of reading. We, help, we partner with Young Life, that helps high schoolers know the love of Jesus right here in this, uh, this, this uh, city. We partner with things. Why? Because we know that when we pull together and we partner with associations that believe in the gospel, our reach and our, our ability to reach people is, is strengthened. That we have ability to help and band together to make sure the gospel is, is proclaimed to those people who need to hear the gospel in other countries and in other parts of the city and in other homes in the city that need to hear this gospel. That when we band together, you see that. And that only happens when we have unity of the faith. And that's why Paul says, avoid those things that distract that would take you away from knowing or being able to band together with that. But not only in just reaching with the gospel, unity supports caring for others right here in our midst. As he reads, as he says in verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. That when we are unified as a church, we help each other be, un, uh, be fruitful. And how do we help each other do that? By helping reach to those people who have urgent needs. I kind of see that as these two aspects that go on here is that when we are helping each other not be unfruitful or helping pe people be fruitful, we're putting into practice what it says in Hebrews 10, 24, when it talks about <clears throat> how, and let us consider how to stir one another up uh, to love and good deeds. NIV has less considered how to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That when we 
are in unity of the faith. We're living life together. We believe the same things. We can speak the truth to each other and help stir one another, spur one another up towards doing what we're called to do, taking care of people in need, loving people, sharing the gospel, doing what Christians are called to do. Not only that, as I said, we spur each other up for that love and good deeds, and so we spur each other on so that we can take care of people. That's what we're called to do, that we're supposed to actually minister to people in real and tangible ways, as we see in Galatians chapter 6, uh, 9 and 10. It says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we'll reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. They're supposed to do good towards everyone, especially, especially take care of the church. And we only can do that together when we're unified and know that we're brothers and sisters in the faith and can care for each other in those real intangible ways. Now I just want to take a moment and brag on River Valley Community Church. Because if you are a member here, hopefully you know what it is to feel loved by your brothers and sisters here. Is that we strive to be there for each other and love each other. Doesn't mean we don't slip, mess up and miss someone in need, but we strive to be there for each other and we love each other. It's because we are unified by that faith and we can look around and call each other brother and sister in Christ. That you're here for me and I'm here for you and that transcends a Sunday morning, transcends even small group, goes into how we live life together with one another. A unified church stays on mission as we share the gospel and as we take care of of each other. This is all built on the fact that we have love and grace, first and all given by God, and then now we extend that to others. Look at this how he ends, how Paul ends the letter. If I can go back to that passage. He says this All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those with love who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Grace in love. It's funny, like, we can argue about whether these are the building blocks of the unity, this grace and love, or if they're what bind us together. I would argue they're both. They're what this unity is built on, and they're what keep this unity together, is that we have love for one another. We have a love that's not how the world defines a love. We have the love of Christ for each other. We have the love of God for each other, the love that sends a son to die for each other, that we love each other to that extent, that we love each other and people see that love. As Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. If, if you love one another, uh, this is a testimony for all who see. People know you're my people if you love one another. And that we have that love, and that's what binds this community of faith together. It's what we build it on, is that God loved us first by sending his son, and now we love his people. And we love people who could be his people. And we love as we have been loved. We love well but it's also built on and bound together by grace. That we have been saved by grace. 
It's nothing we did. We have not earned salvation. We are not good enough. We could not be good enough. It's not because somehow inside of us God something that was superior to other people. No, by grace we have been saved. He calls us to Him. He gives us a faith to believe. And we can hold fast to that, that we have been saved in spite of ourselves. We have been saved in spite of our sin. That God demonstrates His own love for us in this. That why will steer sinners? He sent His Son to die for us. And we hold fast to that. That's what grace is. This unmerited favor. The actual tangible outpouring of God's love and mercy and care for sinners on us. And if we have experienced that, if we know Jesus Christ, we have experienced that. How could we not turn around to our brothers and sisters and give it right back to them? When someone wrongs us, we are quick to forgive. When someone makes us mad, we're quick to be reconciled with them. When, when there's tension in the family, we are quick to give grace and pour out love on each other so that we can have unity that can only come through the body of Christ, can only come through our united faith in him. That's what the church is supposed to be built on. Love and grace. Because we know the truth of the gospel, which is the, which is the epitome of love and grace poured out on us. If I had a vision for the church, this church, global church, it would be a church that's united on the gospel. I say, if I have a vision, that's God's vision for the church. That when he calls people to himself to be his body, he calls people to be united on the basic truths that unite us together. And this church should be united together on its faith, by its faith, united together with love and grace, so that we can be a united church that stays on mission, so that we can be more generous with each other and sending missionaries, more generous with each other, taking care of people right here and in this neighborhood who need people to love them. That we can be united so we can stay on mission and not get distracted by other things. Yes, we can have great family discussions about other things. I love having those family discussions. Let's sit down sometime. But let's focus on the most important things, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ and making him known. Let's be united by that. Let's be a church that's characterized by our love for one another and our extending grace for one another, that we're united behind this and we're quick to send, we're quick to go, we're quick to be who God has defined the church to be. I love this how Paul ends this letter to Titus that gives this vision for what the church is to be. It's a calling based on what God has done for us. A calling based on the truth of the gospel. Let's now walk and live it out wherever we go. And that when where we go, we're not alone because a church united stands with us. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word, for the fact that you call us to be united in our faith, that we can know the truth of your Son and how you have sent him for us, and how he died for us, and how he rose for us. 
And Lord, I just pray that we can cling to that and hold to that and grow in those truths and walk in your ways. Lord, I pray for everyone here that wherever we are in our faith, wherever we are in relationship to this church, that we can see the importance of holding fast to a unity, a community that's unified. That we can see the importance of being part of the community of God, of you. And Lord, I just pray for all of us to see how we can stay on mission in all that we do. Encourage one another. Encourage this church to stay on mission. Because Lord, we love you and we seek you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.